is Assistant Director for Strategy and Engagement for IU's Environmental Resilience Institute. He was hired to be the first Director of Sustainability at IU in 2009, and he helped the university achieve a STARS Gold Rating in 2018. Bill was elected to the National Board of the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education in 2012. He is the former chair of the Indiana chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council, and he taught graduate courses in the IU O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs and J. Irwin Miller Architecture Program. Uh, Bill is a graduate of the Indiana University of Indiana University and the Bolton Ball State University's R. Wayne Estopanal College of Architecture and Planning, and he and his wife, Dr. Linda Brown, are restoring a solar-powered Griffey Creek Farm north of Bloomington. Thank you for being with us today, Bill. My pleasure. And further, Bill was a member of the AIA National uh, Committee on the Environment and a participant in the greening of the White House in 1992-94. His architectural profile or portfolio includes dozens of public schools and libraries, including the first certified energy-positive public library in America, built in Christney, Indiana in 2009. And he's the recipient of two AIA national presidential citations. So uh, uh, why don't we start with that uh, energy positive um, library in Christie, Indiana. Um, uh, why don't you kind of uh, explain that term for our viewers, what, what you mean by uh, energy positive? Well, an energy positive building is, is one that produces more energy than it uses on site. And um, that is a very interesting story of a uh, very small community, Christney, had a population of around 500 people. And uh, somehow they were able to get funding for a feasibility study for their library. And we got that contract and I went to Christney. And um, when I showed up there, they had a huge crowd of people. It was about a quarter of the population of Christney showed up at the feasibility study meeting, which I'd never seen that anywhere else before. But I asked a few questions. I said, do you have any money? No. Um, do you have a site? No. Do you have a storefront that you're going to convert into a library? No. Uh, but you've got permission from the library district to do a branch library. No, they said no. <laughs> no. Uh, I thought that was going to be the shortest feasibility study in history. But um, a room full of people like that meant that they had extreme amount of social capital. And um, that's something you can always work with. And so the journey began to try to figure out how to solve that problem. And um, one of the first idea was to use the elementary school media center, uh, put another outside door on it and call it a branch library and, and allow townspeople to use it. The school corporation said no, that was a uh, violation of security. So, um, but they eventually said we would donate an acre of land for the library. And then went back to the uh, library district and said, would you consent to having a library branch in Christney if we could find a way to pay for it? And uh, they said, no, we just, they just couldn't afford to upkeep and uh, all that. So the eventual strategy there was really unique where we said, what if we got you a free library building paid for by federal grant money and it didn't have any utility bills because we would power it by solar power. And uh, they said, well, that would be interesting. We're, we're interested in how that would work. So they were able to get a federal grant for their library, and that included the solar power as a geothermal heating and cooling, a very well insulated building. And uh, 10 years later, they still haven't paid a utility bill and they have a library and it's part of the uh, Lincoln Heritage Library District. So that was the town of Christney, the school corporation and the library district collaborating to pull that miracle off. So that, that's one of my favorite uh, sustainable design stories because it also talks about the importance of community capacity and how that social capital is so important. And so that was, was that a from the ground up fresh building then? 
Yes, that was a new building on a, again, an acre next to the school. And uh, just behind the library is the outdoor learning lab for the elementary school. And the, the solar panels for that project actually went on what is essentially a shelter house, an outdoor structure that allows people to meet under the solar panels and including the students. Uh, so it is a multi-use outdoor facility that is next to the library. And uh, was building from scratch, did that allow you to uh, make it a lot more efficient? Well, there is a trade-off there. A new building can be built to be very efficient, uh, but you're also uh, using a lot of embodied carbon. And you know, if they had an existing storefront that they could convert into a branch, that would be even more efficient uh, because the embodied carbon that's in the materials of the building that's existing. So an existing building is always a greener building than a new building, no matter how energy efficient the new building is. Yeah, with the adaptive reuse being yes. first option, if at all possible. Uh, were there any innovative materials involved in that? Um, well, that's another interesting story in that we originally designed it to be made of insulated concrete forms, uh, which is a you know, uh, looks like Lego blocks and you pour the concrete in the middle and it's very strong, but it's also very well insulated. You have the thermal mass of the concrete. So um, that's what we originally designed. And then um, when we bid it, it's a public project, the local contractors did not know how to work with that material. So uh, we actually redesigned it to be stick built with uh, conventional wood frame construction and uh, that was a little bit unconventional because we used a two by six stick frame with a 24 inch on centers. And then we had a, uh, an inch of insulation on the outside of that frame to bring it up to uh, a pretty high uh, efficiency level. I think the EUI of that project was like 14 or 15, which a, a typical library would typically be five to six times that much uh, energy use per square foot. That's what the EUI is, is, energy use. Energy use intensity, yes. It's a, a measure of the efficiency of a building. And you can look at the EUIs of typical types of buildings like libraries or schools, and then you can uh, use that as a benchmark for your own project. So was that a bit of a trade-off from what you were originally trying to do? No, actually, it was it was uh, exceeded our expectations in terms of the performance. Um, and that is one thing that inspired me later to look at affordable energy positive design that uses less um, less uh, unique forms of construction. So again, uh, a wood frame construction is very normal throughout Indiana. And everybody knows how to use it. Everybody knows how to bid it. And so um, I have, in my own work, since that time, look for those simple systems that are easy to, for everybody to use, and they're not very exotic. It's not rocket science. And uh, it makes those projects more affordable and uh, easier to pull off. And uh, there are the trade-offs with, with the deforestation. I suppose you're talking about materials that were tree farmed. And then that's set against the cement, the carbon uh, and concrete cement production. Yeah, I think, um, again, if we had done the insulated concrete forms, you'd have a lot of concrete and you'd have a lot of foam. And both of those are intensive in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and embodied carbon. So going with uh, something with low embodied carbon, like uh, a wood product, uh, especially if you contain that, uh, obtain that locally or nearby uh, that has a much lower embodied carbon than concrete or steel. So um, ultimately that was a better choice in regards to embodied carbon as well as to um, constructability and affordability. And I thought I saw something about fly ash. I'm not sure if it was with that building or with a different uh, library. Also in Indiana? I think. Yeah, there was a, a library that uh, we did in central um, Warwick County. It's the Ohio Township Central Library at the time. I think it's called the Bell Road branch now. But 
that was a 36,000 square foot public library where in Warwick County, they were looking at reusing their fly ash. They produce a lot of fly ash in two power plants. And um, that is a hazardous waste product. But it turns out if you embed it in concrete, it becomes fused into the concrete. It becomes benign and it can replace other parts of the concrete mix and make the concrete uh, as strong or stronger than a typical mix. So what we were looking at there was using the local fly ash because they were contemplating building a an autoclaved aerated concrete plant that would incorporate local fly ash. Ultimately, that plant was not built, but this was a proof of concept that uh, you could use that material. And autoclaved aerated concrete is foamed concrete. Oddly, it's foamed with a, an aluminum powder that makes it um, blow up like uh, bread dough with yeast in it. And those bubbles uh, make it very porous, lightweight. That gives it an insulation value, but it's still concrete and it's still fire resistant. Um, typically those are eight inch thick walls and it comes in uh, big blocks that you can saw with hand tools or uh, panels. We actually use both big uh, panels, wall panels, and then individual blocks in certain cases. So uh, some of the advantages of that material in that project were one, it was uh, demonstrating local fly ash being used in the mix, very quiet, very fire resistant. The material is the structure, but it's also the interior finish and the exterior finish at the same time. You put a plaster on the outside and you put a plaster on the inside and you have your wall basically. And um, the fact that it's easy to manipulate and saw and shape meant that we could have a, a uh, sculptural columns and things that would be difficult to do in other ways. But it also made the building about 30% more energy efficient uh, in terms of the shell. We, in that project, used a uh, an elevated floor, a raised floor system, which the floor void became the plenum and you delivered the air conditioning and the heating through the underfloor space. That saved a lot of energy because you don't have ductwork. Um, you don't have any exposed ductwork in the ceiling, so the ceiling could be exposed structure and no ceiling. Um, so that was that was an exploration of how do you do a building that's very energy efficient and very easy to change in the future. Uh, it had long span trusses that made a sawtooth clear story and the tall part of the sawtooth let northern daylight in and the south facing slope was where we put solar panels and solar hot water. And uh, so you had solar on the south slope, you had cool daylight on the north coming in, and that structure allowed the floor to be spanned without any columns so they could rearrange the stacks or whatever was in the middle uh, easily. And since that had a raised floor system, the, any partition walls could easily be moved around in the future. So it was meant to be an easily reconfigurable library space. So multiple innovations on that project. And that was the first project that I used solar on. And that inspired the solution at Christie was to uh, scale the solar down to the size of a small library and power the whole thing. And uh, how about the state of uh, federal grants and uh, tax rebates and uh, some of the rollbacks in, in policy in Indiana regarding net metering and things like that? You got anything to say about the state of how encouraging the systems are on making it more affordable for people? Well, there's a few things that we can touch on there. One is that since Christney was opened up, the cost of PV has gone down 90%. And the cost of their utility bills would have gone up by 33%. 
So, and it made sense then. I mean, um, that library was built for less than the typical cost per square foot of a library in Indiana. And uh, so, again, it was like, um, I thought then that, okay, this is the way everybody's going to do buildings now because we just showed that you can do this and it's affordable and it's not rocket science and anybody can build it. It's off the shelf stuff. Uh, it's real simple. You do geothermal, all electric, and um, add solar. It's pretty simple. <laughs> um, so it's gotten simpler because the price has gotten lower. And there's there's something called uh, Sawyer's Law where every time you uh, double the capacity, uh, double the number of panels that you're you're building, you reduce the cost by twenty percent. And we've been doing that over and over and over again for 10 years. So the cost of solar keeps going down like this. The cost of utility grid solar or grid electricity keeps going up. So the decision seems to be easier all the time. The state is not helping by doing away with net metering, but it still makes sense. I just um, installed solar at my farm and that's on a rural electric where there never was any net metering and it'll pay for itself in less than 10 years. So um, that's still a pretty good investment. And uh, it's it's one that uh, people are still seeing the, the logic of that investment. And, you know, I think even people that don't install solar are looking at electrification because you can see where things are headed, that uh, combustion is pretty 19th century technology. And the further you get away from combustion, the better are you in terms of health and safety and uh, electrification seems to be the future. It's um, heading towards marginal cost and um, it's heading the right direction, definitely. So I think there are things the state could do to encourage more solar, um, but I think solar is going to continue to increase in terms of installation um, for a long time to come. And we're seeing on the industrial side, on the large scale solar, that um, the economics of that are even better than small scale solar. So for those folks that maybe don't have a rooftop that's facing in the right direction or a rooftop that's shaded or they're renting, I think community solar and large scale solar is going to begin, become more important and it's gonna to continue to uh, make the grid more efficient and more renewable energy. So I encourage all of my clients to go full electric in their buildings and to anticipate the future, whether or not they plan on installing, installing solar panels anytime soon. And uh, with some of those, those grants to do with like the Department of Energy or uh, kind of tax rebates or other foundations or organizations that... <clears throat> you know, like funded that library and Kristen? Yeah, in my current role working with the Environmental Resilience Institute, one of the things we are looking at is how to encourage communities to take advantage of this new federal grant money that's coming down the pike. Um, there's two major opportunities. One is the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and the other is the Inflation Reduction Act. And both of those include uh, major incentives for solar, and the Inflation Reduction Act has um, a number of incentives for solar, including a 30% tax credit. And uh, interestingly, this time around, even if you don't pay taxes, if you're a, a nonprofit or say a, a university, uh, you can get the 30% in some other form and uh, not necessarily a tax credit. So there are direct pay rules now that allow you to take advantage of those incentives without paying taxes. There are other incentives that sort of pile up on top of that. If you are in a, uh, an energy community, or if you are in a uh, former coal community or current coal community, there are additional incentives for that. And um, so we're, we're looking at how these things can pile up and and become very attractive. There's a, the Rural Energy for America program is another program that offers loans and grants for uh, rural businesses and agricultural operations. 
those can be up to 75% of the cost of the system. And you can get up to 50% of the cost of the system in the form of a grant. So, and then you can also add the tax credit on top of that. So that is an extremely attractive opportunity that we're trying to help people through that process. And um, we will have a webinar on that coming up uh, soon to tell people more about how that process works. And are there advantages to working with uh, institutions like a library? And I see you've done public schools. Do they set that up? Um, based on projected utility costs that they would otherwise incur as they're doing long-term budgeting? Well, I do think it is important to look at the life cycle cost of a system and how long is it going to last, how long is it going to pay off, uh, what might happen to the cost of other forms of energy in that lifespan. For example, um, you know, next thing I'm going to add at my place is electric vehicle. So if I'm charging my electric vehicle instead of buying uh, fossil fuels, uh, that will accelerate the payback of my system. So what, how does that work for a small business or an agricultural operation? Are there opportunities to save there? But for a uh, library or a school, one of the biggest issues they have is their operating budget. And if, if their operating budget is being chewed up by the utility bill, that's money they can't spend on books or staffing or keeping the library open longer. So um, libraries and schools have been particularly keen on trying to find grants and other opportunities to fund solar or uh, just a more efficient building because that lowers their operating costs and then they can spend that operating money on books and staff and teaching and learning instead of um, you know sending it off to the utility company. So that sort of conversion um, of that operating cost using hopefully uh, grant money or donations of some sort is very important for schools and for, for libraries for that reason. For a business, obviously, um, if you can obtain grant money, it accelerates the payback. For a business, you also have rapid depreciation uh, if you're paying taxes and uh, that can really add up in a hurry. So I think solar doesn't really make sense if you don't look at all of the tax advantages, you don't look at the ways that you're paying yourself back. If you uh, just do a straight up comparison, um, you're probably leaving out some very important parts of the story. So uh, I urge people to do a complete analysis of what the total picture is and how that's going to pay back over time. And again, if if there are policy changes at the state level that would bring back net metering at some point or uh, have other incentives that will continue to accelerate this uh, very fast growing business in Indiana. And um, if not, I think the business is going to continue to grow, uh, but at a slower rate and fewer people might take advantage of it. But I think the writing is on the wall and uh, renewable energy is here to stay. It's cheaper than fossil fuel sources, and it's getting cheaper all the time. So, yeah, some of the naysayers point to the life cycle of the solar uh, equipment that, uh, you know, they, they are dealing with issues of how to recycle it. Um, it, it what, what is the general lifespan of the solar equipment? Um, and, you know, lining that up with the payoff. Well, generally, you can expect a 25 to 30 year lifespan of a system. They tend to be warranted that way. And um, at the end of life, there are a number of recycling companies that have sprung up over time. And I think we're going to see more of that to take advantage of the fact that um, these can be disassembled and reused, or they can simply be reused uh, by folks that are don't care about the fact that they're only getting 80% of the original power output that they may have gotten originally with new panels. So there is quite a market that's springing up with used panels, uh, refurbished panels. And then um, I think the last resort is to taking everything apart and uh, breaking things down and reusing those components. But I don't, I don't see a trend where many of those are ending up in the landfill because of the value of the 
components that uh, are making up those materials. And um, I'm, I've used on a couple of occasions um, bifacial panels that are glass on both sides, and uh, those have a couple of advantages. One is that they can pick up reflected light. And in the case of Christney Library, that has a, a reflective concrete slab. So the light that's reflecting off the slab is hitting the back of the panels that are also generating electricity, not as much as the front, but those bifacial facial panels can pick up energy from both sides, but they're pretty easy to disassemble and reassemble. And you've got those two large sheets of glass that can be reused so uh, or recycled. So I think um, there have been a lot of ways to try to kill solar over the years. Um, one of the first ways was to say, well, what's the payback on that? And you get that all the time with an investment in solar, which I guess is a, a good question to ask. And that that answer keeps getting better all the time. So, uh, but I always used to ask people, what's the payback on your in-ground swimming pool or that uh, bourbon bar in the basement? Uh, you know, we we spend a lot of money on luxuries that don't pay us back at all. It's kind of nice to have a luxury that pays you back. And um, one part of that luxury now, I think that a lot of people are looking at is that you can charge your own battery backup system. You can use the power from that battery backup system at night or when the power is off on the grid. So I think for safety and security, many people are creating their own sort of microgrid so that they can maintain their power uh, no matter what. And they can keep talking on a Zoom call like this, no matter what. And um, they can find ways to keep more of their power that they're generating so they don't sell it back to the grid at a discount. And uh, batteries are still expensive. I think as batteries get cheaper, we're gonna see a lot more of that. And um, you know, I look forward to partaking of that technology at some point. global uh, carbon emissions related to energy that the built environment takes up with some 28% in the operational emissions and about 11% in the materials and construction. So I don't know how many people realize that basically a third of energy use for heating, cooling, and powering is actually related to buildings. You know, people think about cars and larger infrastructural things, but uh, making an impact on the buildings and the homes is a pretty considerable dent in the uh, climate change issue. People are talking more and more about embodied carbon, and because it is critically important in the near term, and it's you're investing in that at the beginning of the project, and you can gradually chip away at that if you have an energy positive building. But, um, you know, the embodied carbon is something you, you actually look at on a solar panel as well. And it turns out uh, in most of the research that I've seen, it takes a solar panel about two years to uh, make up for its embodied carbon in the renewable energy that it produces. Um, and if you had enough of an energy positive building, it would eventually uh, catch up and pay back its embodied carbon. But it makes more sense to try to minimize the amount of embodied carbon in the building in the first place. And again, if you have an existing building, that's a great place to start. How much of that existing building can you reuse? And how much of those existing materials can you reuse rather than replace and avoid that embodied carbon? There's also a huge amount of research now that's going into materials science. How do you make low carbon concrete? How do you make low carbon steel? And uh, amazingly, some of the industries in those fields have zero energy goals, uh, zero carbon goals for the future. And that might rely on developing low carbon fuels like hydrogen that was produced by electrolysis through um, electricity going to PV systems that are powering the electrolysis. So Essentially, you have hydrogen fuel from sunlight, and then you use that hydrogen fuel in the manufacturing process. That's 
something that is in the nation stages of development, but it's certainly uh, an area of research. And we're seeing some companies now that have low carbon materials. Uh, Interface Carpet, for example, has a, a carbon neutral carpet. And uh, so some of this research has uh, resulted in some products that are already on the shelf that can be used to lower the embodied carbon. And um, renewable materials like wood, again, especially if it's uh, wood that's grown in a sustainable forest setting, um, is quite low carbon. And there's some sequestration of carbon in the life cycle of that product. Eventually, it's going to be given up. Uh, if the building is torn down, the wood rots or burns, uh, that will release that carbon. But uh, you can sequester that carbon for the life of the building. If Again, you want to be very careful about where that wood is coming from. And I've often thought that in Indiana, we have 5,000 certified forests that are well-managed forests that contain a lot of hardwood species that you know are selectively harvested to maintain the health of the forest. That source of wood would be very sustainable, very uh, low embodied carbon. And uh, that's something that architects can utilize in their designs. And is that uh, private forests you're talking about or harvesting of the uh, public forests? Well, I was talking about the classified forests, which are um, privately owned forests. And uh, again, those are. Those tend to be very well managed for us. The, the certified forest owners can get certified to be FSC certified, which is uh, the most stringent forest certification. And uh, that is recognized by the lead building rating system, for example. So if you use FSC certified wood in your product, in your project, um, you get extra credit for that. But again, that is a, an avenue available to small forest owners uh, to participate in that system. And uh, are there challenges in these adaptive rehab of existing buildings on things like the insulation or uh, the materials as far as having to kind of remove, you know, old, older toxic materials or have ways to, you know, thicken the walls? I mean, do you employ anything like some kind of a Passive solar, like in a, a greenhouse attachment, as a way have kind of a solar bank on a conventional building. Yeah, that's an interesting question, and um, you know, I taught a class uh, in energy and environmental design at the J. Irwin Miller J. Irwin Miller Architecture Program in Columbus, and uh, one of the first assignments I gave them was to try to figure out how they would take their uh, current building, the Republic Building in Columbus and turn it into a net zero energy building. And um, what the trick with that project was is that it is a, listed on the National Register of Historic Buildings. So you kind of have uh, an interesting problem with historic buildings in that you're dealing with an existing shell of the building, but that existing shell also has historic value. So there are certain things you may not want to do, for example, uh, in this historic building I'm in, this this house near the IU campus, I've got historic weighted wood windows behind me. If we were going to retrofit this house as a net zero energy or net positive energy house, we'd want to leave those windows and maybe look at uh, a clear glazing storm window, maybe an interior storm, something like that, that wouldn't interfere with the look of the system that would add some insulating value. So you look at things like that, you could probably add more insulation to the attic. You look for ways maybe you could insulate the band joists in the basement. Um, but with an existing building, sometimes you don't have as much leeway or things like insula insulation or changing out the windows that you would uh, with a, a brand new building. But you could typically look at the lighting systems and upgrade the lighting. You could um, look at other ways to save energy with controls. You could electrify the systems, go with a high-performance electric heat pump or uh, geothermal. One of the projects that I worked on um, 
as the director of sustainability, we took our e-house, which is another house in this neighborhood that had those constraints and we added insulation. We did all those things that we added um, geothermal heating and cooling with uh, vertical bore wells in the back. There's only like five feet of space in the back of the house to deal with. And we put in two 250 foot boreholes and uh, did geothermal, did uh, LED lighting, um, upgraded the controls to sensors. And um, we put as much solar on the back roof of that house as we could. And we got near to net zero energy, but not quite there. Um, I've often thought uh, we need to add a back porch or something that would bring that up to energy positive, but uh, pretty close, even with an old 1932 house. So I encourage people to reuse the existing buildings and add as much solar as you can to try to bring it up to net zero or energy positive, but you've already done a great thing by preserving that embodied energy, embodied carbon in the structure, and you've reused a piece of history and um, probably save some money in the long run. And I suppose you uh, did a lot of that on the Indiana University campus with the historic uh, limestone buildings. Yes, I use a great example of that. Um, they've done, done a number of lead gold certified buildings that were existing buildings. And um, that's a trick to pull off that um, can be done. And again, there's uh, green building rating systems that are specifically for existing buildings. And um, you can do just operations and maintenance, or you can do major renovations. So IU has done a number of those projects that were existing limestone buildings that you really can't do a lot of changes to. But the other thing about a commercial building is they tend to be uh, ventilation dominated. Uh, you, you have a lot of ventilation air in a commercial building. You're sucking outside air in, you're, you're exhausting your conditioned air. So a lot of times the insulation is not the key thing. It's the, the ventilation rate, which is important. And, you know, the other thing that um, I've taught my architecture students is that it's not just the energy that we should worry about. It's not just the embodied carbon we should worry about. We also need to worry about the people and their health. And so sometimes you have a trade-off between, say, ventilation rate for health and ventilation rate for energy savings. And you want to try to err on the side of health and um, make those systems perform as well as you can to reduce the energy consumption. But um, I have learned that it's not a good idea to increase energy efficiency at the cost of human health because most of the cost in any building that's occupied is gonna be the people in the building and their health is important. Their productivity is important. And whether they come back the next day is important. So you don't want unhealthy buildings that make people sick. And um, that's another part of the puzzle that I think um, is very important that we consider. Yeah, that's definitely the, probably the most often the afterthought is uh, what I call a holistic health consideration of volatile organic compounds and things that build up if you make a place ultra tight you're holding all of those emanations in that's coming off the furniture and uh getting chemical build up in, in people um do you uh address materials and things that are going into the building uh for that consideration a lot absolutely it's you don't have to worry so much about ventilation if you don't have poison in the building so uh, keeping hazardous materials out of the building uh, and then ventilating. Uh, those are two key strategies. And it's become a lot easier to select materials that are not hazardous. Uh, there are various uh, material rating systems out there now, and there are lists that architects can refer to and homeowners can refer to to kind of get to those green lists and those safe lists that uh, are important to consider. The Environmental Resilience Institute, you want to um, explain uh, what that is exactly that the university has been putting together and I guess how you're interfacing with uh, Bloomington in particular with that? 
Sure. The Environmental Resilience Institute was originally funded as a grand challenge of the university and uh, millions of dollars went into funding new faculty and faculty research about uh, vulnerabilities that Indiana might face in the future or currently with climate change and you know how's that going to impact crops, flooding, heat, extreme weather, uh, etc. and uh, developed a lot of tools that are still being used by communities but over time, um, programs were developed where we engage faculty and students in communities around Indiana to do greenhouse gas inventories and climate action plans. And we've had over 195 um, McKinney Climate Fellows. These are um, graduate students or undergraduate students at IU that are funded to do an internship with a community or a corporation or a nonprofit that uh, is subsidized by the McKinney Family Foundation. And they are educated in um, a one-week climate camp to uh, be assured that they know how to do greenhouse gas inventories or climate action plans or whatever it is they're going to be doing with their partner. And um, that system has been very successful over uh, the years. And um, there's been uh, 50 local governments, for example, that have taken advantage of that. And uh, quite a few companies, um, 61 nonprofits, 32 corporations. And what has happened uh, are a couple of things that are interesting. One is that we've been able to keep more IU students here in Indiana that want to be sustainability professionals. They want to work on climate and uh, clean tech, clean, clean energy, et cetera. And they've gotten to know people in Indiana that have then hired them as their sustainability professionals or um, what have you. And uh, the communities, the corporations, the, the nonprofits have seen this as a pipeline for hiring that they've been looking forward to and they can develop a relationship with the climate fellow during their internship and then um, know what they're getting when they hire somebody. So it's been a great professional development pipeline for Indiana. It's elevated the sustainability of many communities and corporations and nonprofits throughout Indiana. And it's provided a, a career path for students um, to participate in Indiana. And it's given their faculty mentors uh, an opportunity to train students specifically for the problems that IU communities are facing. The new wrinkle is the Indiana Resilience Funding Hub that just started, and that is specifically designed to help rural communities fill out the grant forms and administer federal grants for all this new money that's out there for resilience projects. We will hopefully develop a relationship, a direct relationship with five to eight communities help them through the grant writing process, help identify what their issues are and what grants are available to address those issues, whether it be uh, funding for electric vehicle charging or building energy efficiency upgrades or solar or LED lighting for their street lights, whatever. Uh, there's grant money out there that's available and we wanna help them obtain it. So in addition to that, there are gonna be a lot of other communities we wanna help through webinars through information. So our website for the Indiana Resilience Funding Hub also has lots of portals where they can learn about grants that are coming out. They have guides. If they're a city, there's a guide for cities, there's a guide for counties, there's a guide for universities. So uh, we wanna help people kind of get their arms around all this that's coming through the program and how they might take advantage of it, when it might be coming out. We've developed um, two pagers for them for common grant programs that are coming out. So we're helping communities through those one by one, and then also reaching out to the whole state of Indiana through the webinar process, through these two pagers, through the resources we have on the website, and just trying to help in any way we can, as many communities as we can, no matter what their size or where they're located, uh, get through this journey. And with resilience in the title, uh, that seems to kind of uh, focus a little bit, not not 
just on uh, the preventing of climate change, but on adapting to the climate change that's already happening. And I, I know that they, I believe they've prepared maps to show projected changes so that people can look up their area, see about how much more flooding or heat issues or drought or uh, the type of things that they might be facing in order to plan ahead for that. Do you guys actually uh, do any design planning uh, consultancy as well uh, for these communities? Well, again, uh, DRI has done a lot of planning uh, work with communities and also have brought the communities together in cohorts to do planning around a particular theme like urban forestry, for example, or heat mitigation. But um, the programs and the grant funding are really uh, look at climate mitigation and climate adaptation and resilience. How how quickly can you spring back from uh, a, a severe weather event or tornado or or anything uh, a severe uh, heat wave or drought, flooding? Uh, how well is your community set up to respond uh, after an event? Uh, how are you making your community less vulnerable? To those types of events in the first place and how are you potentially keeping more greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere so uh, it doesn't become even worse in the future so we look at all of those aspects and it is community driven uh, you know we don't tell communities what they should be doing then the tools to evaluate their own vulnerabilities and plan together uh, what they think they should address or want to address and then we try to help them find that grant funding that may be available to assist them to implement that program. And how do you think uh, the city of Bloomington is doing on their climate action plan goals and uh, how involved with you, with the city, are you on kind of the evolution and the implementation of that? The city has been a consumer of our climate fellows. <laughs> and. Um, you know, a number of our former climate fellows have worked for the city of Bloomington and uh, continue to work for the city of Bloomington as staff in the sustainability office. So one of the things that Bloomington has been doing that's very impressive is increasing the amount of funding for sustainability efforts. And they have become very adept at grabbing uh, grants Grant. as they come along. And um, so they are a community that we can point to when other communities are trying to learn how to do some of these things and uh, they've gotten very good at it. But again, they have been consumers of many of the programs that we've offered in the past because, you know, it's so convenient for our climate fellows to work there and it's so convenient for them to take advantage of that resource uh, so nearby. But, you know, the Bloomington city and the Bloomington campus of IU are intertwined and uh, the populations are intertwined and interrelated. Uh, so what happens at IU is very important to Bloomington and what happens with Bloomington is very important to IU. So that's a very important relationship in terms of sustainability that is um, always active. Uh, Bloomington, I believe, is still uh, considered the most expensive place to live in the state. And uh, they have the new Hopewell development where the old hospital was torn down and moved out to the perimeter. And it seems that they're kind of shaving back affordable housing, and they're now talking in terms of kind of workforce housing instead of low income. And they've scaled them back, I think, to 20%. And the justification for that is saying that uh, because of the cost of acquiring the property in the first place, and so you have these scenarios of green housing being more expensive to build on the front end is the conventional understanding. But it seems to me that if they implemented these kind of efficiency measures and eco-design that you're talking about, that and implemented a few other things like turning it into an urban farm so that these things become revenue sources for the people to live there and have all these eco-systems right in the heart of the city close to the downtown that they could uh, mitigate a lot of that cost by turning it into green collar jobs and, and sort of uh, cottage industry for the residents. 
instead of making it another kind of boutique high-priced you know the majority of it that it would seem that they could possibly wipe out our stats if they made it mostly affordable not necessarily low income designated but under market i mean what do you think about hopewell development do you guys have any any ore in that water well affordable housing is really a tough nut to crack but um you know i, I do think that there's a misconception that affordability is just the first cost of the building. And, um, you know, if you look at anybody's cost of living, it's not just the building that they're concerned about. It's their utility bills and the cost of operation. So I think the cost of operation has to be included in any building, whether it's an existing building or a new building. And there, are, uh, right now there's uh, grant funding coming available that you can use up to $14,000 to renovate an existing house if, if it's in a low income qualified um, housing. The other thing I've noticed is that there is a Department of Energy Zero Energy Ready Housing Program. Many of the developments that have taken advantage of that program are Habitat for Humanity um, neighborhoods where uh, the whole key is affordability, but they've recognized that affordability includes affordable utility bills. And if you can make a home ready to have its own solar, uh, anticipating that that's gonna get cheaper in the future or you may, may qualify for some sort of grant funding in the future, then uh, you create an all electric affordable home that is ready for solar. And uh, that doesn't take much of an extra investment to do that. And so we see a lot of uh, Habitat for Humanity chapters that are doing that sort of thing. And uh, I had an assignment for my students where their goal was to create affordable energy positive housing and uh, they were able to tackle that. And um, so, you know, I think that's a misconception that you throw out uh, energy efficiency when you're aiming for affordable housing. And, you know, contractors will tell you that if you do it right, um, Affordable means that you have a building that performs very well. And uh, it's a bit of a trick to pull that off, but uh, you have to think about it from the beginning. And again, if you have a, a well-insulated envelope, you can downsize the heating and cooling equipment and maybe save as much money as you would have spent, uh, you know, if you'd uh, eliminated some of the cost of the insulation or the, the better windows. So you have to think of the home as a system and reduce the cost of the heating and cooling systems, and then um, look for opportunities to add that solar PV in the future. And we're seeing that there's grant money now available through programs like these tax incentives programs we're seeing that makes that much more affordable. Mm -hmm.